Hi, it's Delegate Mike McKay, District 1C, serving Allegheny and Washington counties. You're listening to my go-to source for news and insight on Maryland policy and politics, the Conduit Street Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? Good, Kevin. How are you? Doing very well, thank you. And today on the podcast, we're going to talk about the latest in Governor Hogan's road widening plan. There was a big vote today, which is Wednesday, at the Board of Public Works. The prospect of D.C. statehood turns out Maryland has big skin in the game. And we'll talk about the latest on opioid litigation. There's some big news out of Oklahoma and here at home. So, Michael, let's first get into the Board of Public Works today. They had a big vote on whether to allow Governor Hogan's traffic relief plan to move forward, and this is all about a public-private partnership. Yeah, all hands on deck. I mean, this Board of Public Works is – maybe one of a kind in the country, but it's it's a very powerful board where the governor, the comptroller, and the treasurer sort of approve contracts. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean that's, the, that's the shorthand version of what they do. Yeah, and a lot of those contracts certainly have a direct impact on local government, so we have right. a lot of skin in the game there, too. Well, yeah, so lots, lots of stakeholders, lots of the familiar faces from around Annapolis during the legislative session, you'll see pop up at Board of Public Works meetings, either giving public comments, Right. They're state agencies who have a proposal or they're working on something that affects counties. A lot of our park projects go before the board and so forth. So you know, something that we try and pay attention to. It's a little inside baseball. Usually mm-hmm. uh, things have been I don't a little know, wonky, a little lively, though, the last few years. The, the, the comptroller sometimes has been has, has been using these venues as an opportunity to you know to make statements on broader policy issues so people have been paying attention for for political reasons uh, but a lot of policy today as they're talking transportation right so this is all about for some background this is all about this road widening plan that everybody has been talking about this is a proposal from governor Hogan's administration lots of questions very controversial right and, and I mean in in broad sweeping terms this is something he announced back in late 2017 as a general plan to try and go after congestion on our major highways right which and, we all know right, is a problem definitely a problem I mean, you know, the the, the D.C. region in particular tends to rate really, I don't know, I don't know whether high or low is the way you want to yeah. phrase it, but like high for congestion or low, low, for quality yeah, of life. low for quality of life as a result of congestion. But, you know, we're right there with Los Angeles and, you know, some other players that, you know, we have, we know we've got gridlock problems and it's a priority for a lot of people who live here. Governor has, has sort of said, let's bring private companies to the table and that, you know, you read between the lines, it doesn't take a magician to say that that probably means you're talking about toll facilities. There has to be a revenue stream to make a private company interested. Right. Essentially, this plan would allow a private investor to build the highway, manage the highway, uh, collect tolls, and eventually they would turn a profit once those tolls paid for their initial investment. Right. And like express lanes Mm -hmm. seems to be the centerpiece of at least a big part of this plan. At At the moment, the two highways we're talking about at the top of the list are Interstate 270. That sort of goes northwest out of D.C. in the direction of Frederick. And then second in line seems to be, you know, I-295, the Baltimore-Washington Parkway that leaves the Washington, D.C. area and goes right up 
to the Baltimore Beltway, um, both of those roads can get really locked up. Uh, 270 is one that people grieve and complain about all the time. So the proposal has been to put on, you know, fast, faster toll access lanes. Uh, what are you know the the, the, Lexus, the lanes. Lexus lanes? People like to call them, right? So the Lexus lane proposal is a way of saying, hey, for those who want to get on the fast lane, you can pay for the privilege of doing that, and that will indirectly get some of the cars off the rest of the lane, so everybody gets some benefit out of them being there. Right, and 295, of course, there there is an issue there a bit with the federal government owning some of that land, right. and so that I think was shelved a bit. The BW Parkway and 495 and 270 now are the the big components of this plan, right? And so today was a vote on whether or not this project would be green-lighted to go forward by giving them the authority to say, okay, private firms, you can bid on this project now, and that would essentially create the P3 and move the whole thing forward. Yeah, I think, I mean, this can get get technical really quickly, but I think everybody saw today's vote as the green-light to go ahead with this whole plan in general and giving the authority to the Department of Transportation to go engage with private partners was the critical thing that needed approval. I mean, the State Highway Administration, they, they're doing routine contracts all the time to bring in somebody to do lay some asphalt or that sort of thing. But a private vendor who would do their own financing, that's a different kettle of fish. It needed this, you know, this degree of approval. And we, we've seen this fight coming for some time. There's been a good deal of stir at the community level, at the legislative level about this proposal. Right. So the bottom line, the administration says this plan will provide residents with much needed traffic congestion relief without having to pay for it with taxpayer dollars. Because again, that private company, the P3 partnership, they would bring in the investment, they would fund the roads. So this week, Michael, and in the you know preceding weeks, we have seen press conferences and events with a lot of state and local officials objecting to this plan. The reasons for their objections range from environmental concerns all the way to the use of eminent domain right. to take homes and parklands, which has been a contentious issue in this this whole process. There's been some back and forth about still some mm-hmm. questions lingering there, I think. But there are a lot of state and local officials, primarily from Prince George's and Montgomery counties, who have come together and said, this is not a good idea. We need to slow this down. We have a different proposal, which will focus more on multimodal transportation uh, and transit. That's what they want to do. But it all came to a head today. Uh, sure did. And I think those issues of, you know, if, if you do widening or new building of roadways, I mean, that tends to mean that there's stuff in the way that you have to take possession of. You compensate the people if they have to move their homes and so forth. But still, that's difficult if you have to pick up your business and relocate or move your home elsewhere and that sort of thing. I mean, those things are difficult and it's difficult for a neighborhood. So that's always a thorny part of doing a big public works project. But the the fact that this is extra lanes as as the proposed, you know, at least short term or medium term solution right. for a big traffic problem, it rubs certain people the wrong way. And we saw that contingent really get up in arms about this. You know, why aren't we doing why aren't we doing a rail you know, a rail offering? Why are you doing an extended spur from the metro system or standalone light rail or monorail or whatever right, else? Right. You know, we've seen all these different ideas being tossed around, but all as ideas saying you shouldn't be enabling more cars or promoting more cars. Let's find something, you know, more environmentally friendly, more or you know, you know, community level rather than individual level. So that, I mean 
it took all those things for this to get to the level of furor that it reached. And, and that was, it was pretty hot debate. Yeah. I mean, I know they had at least 40 people signed up to testify on this particular issue today at the board of public works. And there are people, you know, standing outside the state house, having a press event during the meeting and so forth. I mean, this is the, this is the nature of the event that people feel very, very strongly and they get in and got there. Well, today it turned into one minute to speak before the board itself. So that was sort of a, a rapid fire conversation. Um, and there was some fire. Yeah. So after all the fire, they took a little break. The governor came back and said, look, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to make a motion to amend this agenda, to amend this item, to say that because of all the concerns we've heard from state and local officials, we're going to change the order, essentially, of how we do this project. The governor says, look, everybody seems to agree that 270 needs a lot of work. There's a ton of congestion there. There isn't as much of an issue with eminent domain on 270. So instead of making the I-270 portion of this phase three, which would be the last phase of this project, the governor is now proposing, let's make that phase one. We'll go ahead and get started. Do that first. Right. right. I think, I think. I mean, the governor might have said everybody agrees. I think people in the room might have said, well, there are fewer objections or there are less profound objections to the I-270 widening and extra lanes as opposed to right. the things that are on the Beltway itself and the bridge heading toward Virginia mm-hmm. and so forth. The, those components of the project, I think, may have been the most hot button and the most sensitive. So the governor sensed that and said, let's green light the project, but let's reshuffle the order and try and do some of the, I don't know, relatively speaking, low hanging fruit. Right. Relatively. I guess that's, that's <laughs> fair. So essentially what will happen now is Montgomery County's portion of the Beltway expansion would move to phase two, and then Prince George's County's Beltway improvements would move to phase three. The whole idea, according to the governor, is to give more time for the state and the locals to come together and work on some sort of different plan or come to agreement, amend the current plan, but certainly don't want to move forward with all of this backlash. And I think the governor wanted to get something started. So that quote unquote low hanging fruit seemed to be the best avenue for him to do that today. Yeah. So on a, on a three member body, you need two votes. I mean, not to do high level mathematics here, but um, so when the governor makes his own motion and says, I'm going to make these various recommended changes, that's a quick signal to everybody. I mean, all these reporters in the room and all these people who are trying to cover, you know, live tweeting the event and all this so forth. Everybody's trying to get all this stuff down. Thank you to all those people, by the way. By the way, right. it was very helpful. But um, but I think as a, as a practical matter, that's the quick signal that this may be worked out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was not 100% certain that this was going to pass today. No, and, and all <laughs> eyes were on, quite frankly, the comptroller, Peter Franchot. I think it was widely known that the treasurer, Nancy Kopp, was going to vote against this plan, but nobody seemed to know what Peter Francho would do, whether he would greenlight the plan or whether he would vote against it. And of course, voting against it would shut this whole thing down. So there was a lot of pressure on the comptroller, a lot of pressure on you know the treasurer and the governor too. But I think this sort of gave them a way to move forward without all of the objections that they'd seen before. And Peter Francho also introduced four amendments. Right. So that was, I mean, procedurally, that's important. Yes. The governor, governor says, well, here's what I have in mind. Let's change the proposal. I want to do A, B, and C. So all of us are trying to scribble down our notes over what we just heard the new proposal might look like. And then the comptroller sort of like unrolls his scroll and he's got, well, I've got D, 
through you know Q right, right. <laughs> as my different changes, and he walked through a, a pretty long list of ideas he had for refinements and changes and so forth. Right, um, right. You know, all in the interest or toward getting a go for today, but not exactly the plan that was on on deck as of yesterday. Right. So his amendments, uh, he basically said, look, I don't want eminent domain to be used until you have approval of the Board of Public Works. We want any proposal to- public process. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Under public process. We want any proposal to include a provision that provides mass transit bus access on the tollways for free. And then he wants 10% of all toll proceeds once the developer has been reimbursed to go to Prince George's and Montgomery County for regional transportation priorities and a feasibility study on monorail service between Shady Grove and Frederick. (laughs) You think monorail, you think Disney World. I don't know. Maybe there's... I I still think the Simpsons. Apparently apparently so does the governor. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty good. That was pretty good. So bottom line is this project got the P3 designation, but they will start on 270 rather than on 495 in Prince George's and Montgomery counties. And each one of those phases will come back before the Board of Public Works to be approved in the future. So probably not the last we're going to hear about this, but to the extent that some people were all in to hope that they might persuade the comptroller to vote no and just shut this whole thing down, shelve it all, and we'll next year we'll be talking about a giant transit expansion and and some you know some uh, aquamarine line or whatever that would run you know to extended variations of the the DC area. It, it looks like this is more you know this is going to be the plan. It's just going to look different than it started. And Michael, speaking of the D.C. area, our Mm -hmm. friends in D.C., let's get into the next topic that we have today, and that is the prospect of D.C. statehood. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about what that might look like and explain why Maryland has major skin in this game. There has been a longstanding movement to make D.C. the 51st state, and it seems to be picking up some momentum recently. And why is that? Well, I mean, there's a a variety of reasons. This is not a a new issue, but... I don't know. This one has a little bit of something for everybody. Yes, it does. If you if you like federal politics and the sort of trench warfare between the two political parties, we got some of that. If you like regional disputes, if you got if you like fights over history and what were the intentions of the founders of our country, I mean, who does? We got a little bit of that. Um, you know, so like we've got treaties and documents and procedures and precedents that go back decades and decades and decades and. Some people dig all that kind of stuff. Um, anyhow, I mean, what's what's got this on the maybe you know off the back burner and sort of onto the front burner is a couple of things. The leadership in the U.S. House of Representatives has taken up this issue and said we don't think the federal government is doing right by the voters in the District of Columbia. Right, and you know more or less. I mean, you know, we'll talk through some of the nuts and bolts here, but more or less saying this doesn't seem fair that you're not fully franchised in the way that residents of the other states who are part of the contiguous 48 plus two, you know, while well, they they have their their voting rights and so forth. Um, and then the, an interesting twist, which matters more than meets the eye, is one of the members of high leadership in the House of Representatives, Steny Hoyer, Maryland from congressman in, from here in Maryland, he's the you know the senior member of our congressional delegation, publicly said he's rethought his view on this and has changed his opinion and now supports D.C. statehood, which would be different from where he's been. He may have evolved on this issue, so. That puts it in the spotlight a little bit. 
Right. So a little bit of background here. D.C. has a population of more than 700,000 people. That's more than the states of Vermont and Wyoming. It is considered its own territory, representing the seat of the federal government in the United States. And of course, territories are different from U.S. states and Native American tribes because states and Native American tribes have limited sovereignty. And Michael, this reminds me of our favorite territory, Mm. Guam. And did you know that Guam has been a U.S. territory since 1899? 1899. Okay. It was right. organized under the Guam Organic Act of 1950. All oh, right. Well, yeah, I, was, I was there. Right. For of that, course, right? you knew about that. Yeah. <laughs> which granted U.S. citizenship to Guamanians and gave Guam a local government. And in 1968, the act was amended to permit the election of a governor. Mm. But anyway, you know, we love Guam. Do you but, have to be from Guam to run for governor of Guam? Just, you know, for next week. Just, Tune just, in we'll, next we'll, week. We'll, we'll, we'll tuck that away. I'm, I'm just saying. I don't yeah. know if there's a residency requirement, that sort of thing. I may want to look into that. All right. We can't, we can't get off track with Guam. We got <laughs> to get back to D.C. <laughs> okay. All right. So anyway, the reason that D.C. is a territory and not a state goes all the way back to America's founding fathers because the authors of the Constitution wanted to house the federal government in its own jurisdiction after witnessing the problems of having the nation's temporary capital in Philadelphia. And that was all because of an incident in 1787 in which the governor of Pennsylvania refused to disperse rioters who were threatening the Hmm. Congress in Philadelphia. So the framers didn't want the federal government to be subject to any decisions of a specific state or governor. Right. And and, I mean, there's probably an argument that at that time, the you know the the local gendarmes who might be called in to help protect or or you know surround uh, people doing the business of the federal government. I mean that was an awfully big and important part of the government's ability to function. Maybe more so than today. I'm not sure that you know the notion that the District of Columbia, if it were a state, would be incapable of functioning in that capacity today at a level where we say, oh, we, you know, we put this in the hands of Pennsylvania or Maryland or Virginia, and then, you know, what do you have? Right, right. James Madison, of course, one of the founders, argued in the Federalist right. Papers that the federal government needs control of the nation's capital so that it can maintain policies that fit federal lawmakers' needs. And he was particularly concerned with a single state that could impose control over Congress by managing its security needs and other accommodations. And of course, that could give that state a lot of power over the Congress. So James Madison was very vocal in the need for the nation's capital to be controlled by the federal government. Right. So, I mean, but with that as a practical concern on the part of the federal government, you ended up with an odd circumstance where you created the new U.S. capital, but you you know you took originally took land from two different states, right. and you created this special district, and you said this is going to stand alone. Now here we are, so many decades later, and the world has changed so much, and now you've got you know close to three quarters of a million people who effectively have no vote in their federal governance. That's right. I mean they have they get electors for president, but in the you know in the deliberation and annually over budgets or over you know over all you know um, you know, uh, advice and consent sure, to nominees sure. and so forth. They're basically left out of that process, completely left out of the process through the U.S. Senate right. and substantially left out of the process in the House of Representatives. 
the DC has one non-voting member of the House. Yeah, Eleanor Holmes Norton. Right. She's been there for a long time. Right. She can vote in committee. She can participate. She can speak on the floor, but she cannot vote right. for final action on a bill. Right. Which occasionally is a really big deal. If, I mean, they do an awful lot of things by consensus and so forth. But I mean, every, you know, if you're a government junkie, you've paced the floors watching one of these roll calls on the House of Representatives, and sometimes you sit there and you wait to see whether there are you know a sufficient number of votes. It's you know they're counting heads. I love that process. She's by out. the way, you know, everybody just kind of is walking <laughs> 15 around. Fifteen minutes, they're walking around. Yeah. Sometimes you see people banging heads yeah. and twisting arms it's, and stuff. Like, yeah, C-SPAN is great, but anyway, <laughs> DC has operated under a system of home rule since 1973, and that means that it can have a local government, including an elected council and a mayor, but. The big problem for them is that Congress has the ultimate authority over D.C.'s budget, and it has the power to overturn any laws passed by the local government. And we've seen this bubble up before with marijuana and gun control issues, right? So it's definitely an issue. And Michael, (laughs) we all know D.C.'s slogan, right? And that's taxation without representation. Right. Right. Right? I mean, they wear it like a badge of honor, which, I mean, actually sort of started – as a little bit of a joke on the on the way out of the White House, the Clinton administration sort of dropped off and said, "You know what? You know this 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 D.C. statehood thing has some legitimacy to it. Let's stick an eye, stick a finger in the eye of the people who have been opposed to that, and we'll we'll sign a document declaring that the D.C. license plates will have the phrase taxation without representation. You know, it's not not doesn't have the same ring as live free or die, right. sort of thing. Right. But lo and behold, uh, here we are, all these years later, and that's still what's on the D.C. license plates. Now they're all over the place. It used to be a novelty." Now it's just sort of a constant reminder of, wow, this is sort of a mess. That's an interesting tidbit (laughs) that I think a lot of people probably won't know. So there you go. So that and there's another major issue, and that is the ability to raise revenue. The district does not have full state taxing authority. Mm. That's because Congress expressly prohibited the district from taxing the income earned within its borders by non-residents. That's a power that all states have. Like a commuter tax, right. people would call that. So. Right, and it's interesting because that provision was heavily lobbied for by officials from Virginia and Maryland. Do you think? You think, right? <laughs> right. So state income taxes apply to income to earn in the state by residents and non-residents alike, and that's the case in every state. Some states like Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania, they have agreements that exempt their residents from state income taxes if they work in another state and they pay state income taxes there instead. The lack of the state-level income tax on non-resident income really, really affects the D.C.'s uh, revenue-raising capability. And in fact, two-thirds of the income earned in the district are made by people who don't live there, and therefore they're not paying any of the income taxes to the district. Okay, so so let's let's walk through this because this, I mean, this is the piece that really matters as a contemporary issue of public policy for those of us who are looking at Maryland. We're talking about the Maryland state budget and doing schools and all that kind of stuff. Right. So right now, we got a fair number of people who, let's say, you know, live in the state of Maryland, but they work in Pennsylvania. Right. They work up in Gettysburg or something like that. I got a friend lives in Frederick, Maryland, works in Gettysburg. And we have a lot of people, yeah. right, in the state that do that. Sure. So, and, and like everywhere. So, mm-hmm. and, and the way his taxes work is he pays the Pennsylvania income tax on income he earns there. So right. his employer files and withholds and so all that kind of stuff. So he pays based on that. And then he gets a credit 
against what he would be paying to his to his state and county. That's right. As a result of that win decision, um, mm-hmm. he gets a credit against both of those to basically wipe out the effect of that tax liability. Um, it's a wash. We've mm-hmm. got to deal with Pennsylvania and most of the surrounding states. That that's how it works. The people who live in Pennsylvania and work in Maryland have the reverse, and so you don't end up with people having an absolute tax nightmare just because they cross a state line. We have a reciprocal agreement. So basically the states work it out. But what's missing is the District of Columbia doesn't have the ability, if you live in Maryland or if you live in Virginia or I guess West Virginia maybe or Mm -hmm, Delaware, I mean, if you live in a surrounding state and you work in D.C., uh, you, they can't, they can't capture that as taxable income within their jurisdiction. Right. That's a right reserved to states and they're, in this case, just a district. That's right. And then the other, the other issue, property tax income, I mean, as we know, the, the city's largest employer is the federal government. They use a lot of city services, but they don't pay property sales or income taxes. And the same is true of embassies, international institutions, and many tax-exempt nonprofits also go to D.C. to be near the federal government. Yeah, so yeah. a big issue with them being able to collect property tax revenue as well. So that's that's not one that they could solve by becoming a state. That's true. I mean, it is a lingering fiscal problem for D.C. and their government and for their ability to provide public services. But that one basically is unchanged. The You know, the various churches and nonprofits and particularly government entities mm-hmm. would be tax exempt under either circumstance but this matter of taxing out of district residents would be a big tax consequence for DC but also for states like Maryland right and so this whole movement has come to a head and in 2016 you had 84% of eligible voters in DC vote yes on a referendum that would allow them to apply for statehood. Yeah, yeah, no right? surprise. Right. No surprise. Right. So there are three ways they could do it. It turns out, I mean, we don't know which way they want to go, but you could do it as a constitutional amendment. You could do it by law, which would be, you know, just going through Congress. Or you could use another model, which would just allow you to have your residents vote to become a state. Then you present your model of government, your constitution, and then you automatically just become a state. Tennessee did that. So there's some question about what they do. It It is strange. There's not just one path to statehood, which comes as a bit of a surprise to most of us. Yes. Uh, you know, and you did a little looking into this, and I was surprised to hear that this was a matter of uncertainty how you'd proceed, but wouldn't have to be a constitutional amendment, mm-hmm. which seems like would be the laborious, you know, difficult process. Absolutely. And, and I mean, the Constitution says that there is a 10-square-mile area that should serve as the, the capital of the U.S. federal government. As we know, D.C.'s borders and boundaries expand well past that 10-square-mile. So if D.C. did become a state, it would be likely that the federal government would still control that 10-square-mile right. radius, which is you know the Capitol building, the White House, a lot of federal buildings. Right. But then D.C. would have control over the rest. So you'd have like a Vatican City sort of mm-hmm. deal where there would be a federal territory within the state, of, you know, the state of formerly D.C. They call it you know, New Columbia or something. New like Columbia. That, right? Yeah, you're right. You're right. So, Michael, of course, this is this is a big issue. There are a lot of opponents who say this goes against the wishes of the founding fathers. They say that. The feds, again, would have to rely on one state for security. Uh, And, of course, there are political calculations. Granting D.C. votes in Congress would almost certainly benefit the Democrats, right? So that becomes, as it always does, politics plays a role. So that that lies in the background of all this. Now, there's there's no coincidence that when we talked about this topic, getting a little bit of run as of late – 
in D.C., we mentioned the House of Representatives as opposed to the U.S. Senate. The two chambers of Congress right now are held by different parties. The majority in the House is held by the Democratic Party, who sees this as an issue that's favorable to the Democratic Party. So, I mean, lo and behold, your thoughts about the importance of representation and the wishes of the founding fathers and so forth uh, might find themselves uh, negotiable as you realize what this would mean to the electoral map, what it, you know, how it might change the votes in the House, how it might change the votes in the Senate. Right. I mean, and, especially you know, in the Senate. I mean, you know, you look at how how close between the two parties right now the U.S. Senate is. Uh, the the, you know, the every two years now we seem to be having a fight over who what party's going to have control of the U.S. Senate. If suddenly there were a new state that if. If the future looked like the past, would probably be electing two blue senators. Then, lo and behold, you'd find that you know that balance would be shifted. Um, there's a you know, different proposal has been tossed around you know, as as intermediates of how do you give the DC how do you give DC some representation in the House of Representatives and. I've seen a variety of cockeyed plans that say, well, we'll you know create a district in D.C. and we'll add one in Utah or some other place that's like very reliably red. Mm-hmm. Right. Right? But on, on the ground, say, OK, you can do the arithmetic and you come up with this and that. And um, some people say Maryland should just absorb D.C. and that way they would have voting rights in Congress. But you wouldn't have to worry about this whole issue with you know the revenue and, and the federal government controlling the city. There's a lot of stuff out there that would be very complicated. I'm not sure Maryland would want to do that. That's its own podcast. Right? Yeah, that is its that's, own. I mean, not, not not its own episode of our podcast. That's its own podcast. Like somebody else start. No, no, it's like somebody else start up your own thing. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. If you're out there listening and you're interested in this exactly, stuff, right. you should do it. The Maryland Association of Counties is not actively recruiting new members. We I would deny the rumors that we've been sizing up the three counties in Delaware. Although, anyway. although you know, who knows? Who knows? All right, so we've talked about. A lot of the issues, you know, politics and the way this could affect uh, D.C.'s ability to raise revenue. But the bottom line, Michael, how will this all affect Maryland money? And that's because, as we've alluded to, if D.C. became a state, it could enact a commuter tax. Maryland residents working in D.C. could be subject to D.C. income taxes. And thus, it's likely they wouldn't pay Maryland income taxes. And we're At talking least they'd to- wash out some or all of it. I mean, it depends on the nature of your income. That's true. But a that's typical true. person who has one income from a job and the job is in D.C. but the home is in Maryland, that person would become a D.C. income taxpayer rather than a Maryland taxpayer. And boom, big difference. And we're talking about billions of dollars yeah. in potential revenue losses every single year. Right. I mean, so, and, and we, we talked about Kerwin right. and how much that's going to Dr. Kerwin. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, one, one, I, one, more, one more hiccup here. Uh, right? so, so, one yeah. more hiccup. Like, we don't need any more. So. But, I mean, I, and a lot of people have said, you know, what about the flag? And to be honest, I've seen mock-ups of a flag with 51 well, stars. Know, it's not bad. I, I don't know. You do, like, I, I gotta nines tell you. and eights, and you do three. I mean. It's I, weird, yeah. Yeah, yeah, nine, eight, nine, eight, nine. yeah that's, that's the way you do 51, I guess. I, meh. I'll put a picture on the blog. But uh, but also, so where are we now? I mean, the, the Congress, as you said, this has gotten very political, but they will hold a hearing on a bill that would grant D.C. statehood. That will be held on July 24th, 2019. We actually have a date. Uh, like you said, Speaker Pelosi in the House and the minority leader in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, are very supportive. It's likely this bill could pass the House. Possible. possible. I'll, I'll, I'll dial that down to possible. I'm going to go, uh, okay, Michael says possible. I'm going to go 
maybe a, a tick above possible. But, of course, it would face an uphill battle in the Senate, Michael, as you mentioned. Yeah, I'll, I'll take the under on that. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll definitely take the under on that. I think we're on the same page there. But um, but certainly an interesting issue. It's one that's not going to go away. As we said, D.C. already has a name for their new state, New Columbia. They've already drafted a constitution. I'll link all that on the blog because it's pretty interesting. But lots more to come. And now they are actually going to get a hearing in the House. That's a big deal. Do you think we should do like a feature on a different U.S. territory every episode hmm. and lose what what remains of our of our <laughs> that might little do bit it. of listenership? That's that might that might maybe, do maybe, it. That might push it over the edge. Yeah. Okay, all right, we'll we'll shelve that. Idea. We'll shelve that. Maybe that's for somebody else. Maybe we'll start <laughs> another podcast like on the down low. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> you, you might be able to find it. But anyway, we're going to take a break there. When we come back. We're going to talk about opioid litigation. We're going to have Natasha Mayhew join us, which will be great for the ratings because everybody loves Natasha. We'll talk about all that and more after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. And as promised, Natasha Mayhew has joined us. Natasha, welcome back. How are you today? Doing good. Good to be back. Thank you for being here. Of course, anytime we talk about opioids, you are the expert. We have to have you here. <laughs> but I also know you live in Baltimore City, and we talked last week about the ransomware attack in the city. We wanted to give a brief update, but you've seen firsthand how this has affected Baltimore City and its residents. Right. Yeah, I do live in the city. I mean, I, I have friends that live in the city and it becomes hard when people need to get their permits processed or pay certain bills when the computers are down and suddenly you realize just how much you rely on computers and your local governments to get things done. Definitely. Yeah, local government, you know, is that, you know, we, we always talk this, you know, that is one of the party line statements from MAKO is it's the level of government closest to the people. But suddenly when a government can't get something done, people realize how much they rely on. There's something to that. So we talked about the ransomware attack last week, and we talked about how the, the estimate now to get the city back online is about $18 million. Oof. And Michael, we discussed this and then we heard an episode of The Daily Podcast, which we are big fans of. That's a New York Times podcast. They put it out every morning and it's different subject every day. It's really well done and you should listen to it if you yeah. don't. But, Michael, let's talk about – they talked about this ransomware attack. Yeah, their June 4th episode. And I, I mean, I'm i a regular listener of The Daily. It's published by The New York Times. And, of course, they've got an army of yes. reporters yes. and writers and researchers. And, you know, their list of producers and technicians at the end of each week is like 18 <laughs> people long. Right. I think our list of producers is like Kevin Canale, Kevin Canale, well. Kevin Canale. That's pretty much how it works, right? Anyhow, um, so you should get the credit where you do there. Mm. Uh, but as far as the times goes, they they put together uh, you know a half hour segment. That's the, that's their shtick, right? They 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 do twenty four minute bundled content. And it's packaged for radio and that sort of thing. So first so thing they, in the morning, yeah. So they I mean they have to be they have to be brief, but. 
I wasn't happy the way they talked about the money issues here. I mean, they, I thought their discussion of how this eternal blue software came to be. That's the purported leaked software from the NSA that made it into the wrong hands and affected Baltimore. Yeah, if you're interested in the 15 minute version of that, listen to the daily from from June 4th. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. But when they were talking about where Baltimore sits now, they sort of put right side by side the. $18 million estimated cost of fixing and repairing and all this sort of stuff. And they said, and then there's still the $100,000. They want like 13 Bitcoin, right? It's about a hundred grand. They're like, well, there's also the $100,000 ransom. They play a tape of Mayor Young saying he wasn't going to pay the ransom. But they, in my judgment, they just sort of left it sitting there, 18 million to fix it or a hundred grand to pay the ransom. And I felt like that segment could have used another 30 seconds of what does your hundred grand buy you exactly from from the ransom special? Right, and we know that the daily, you know, like you said, they they package their content. It's thirty minutes right. max, so yeah. they don't have a ton of time. But I agree with you; they left it there. Like, well, you have a hundred grand here, you have eighteen million here. Which would you rather what are you do? Doing, right? And then they it, they cut it off. I mean, it, you, you, they lead you right to the point of saying, why why the hell isn't the city just paying the ransom? Exactly. And I don't know. It's sort of like. You know, in the in you know in these old detective movies, when some bad guy you know kidnaps somebody, and you meet over the the creaky dark bridge in the rain, and they say, "Well, <laughs> I got the bag of money, and you got the hostage." I mean, the deal is never. I'll leave the bag of money here on the bridge and then I'll drive home and then I trust that you'll just let the hostage go later. Yeah, it doesn't work that, like That's that. not how you yeah. ever deal. So, I mean, what do you do if you send these people 13 Bitcoin? They say, okay, now we want 150. Also, I mean, yeah, there's no guarantee, first of all, that you know they're going to send you your, your, your passwords to get right. back into the computers. There's right. no guarantee they're not going to ask for more money, but also – you know, what does it say if you pay right. them the ransom? They're going to keep coming back for more. So I agree with you that, that that could have been a little bit more. They could have gone a little bit more into the decision behind the decision not to pay the ransom and how it could affect the city. The Daily is great. We love the Daily. Go listen to it. But we think they could have done a little better job explaining the issue there. All true. All right. So let's jump into opioids. Natasha. Everybody is watching Oklahoma and what is going on there. Why is Oklahoma in the news when it comes to opioids? Okay, so Oklahoma was one of the first states to have their trial set for um, going against the opioid manufacturers and distributors. What's the argument? What is Oklahoma saying? What, what is their argument to take these distributors to court? Yeah, so their argument is that they contributed to, in general, that they contributed to the to the opioid crisis, and they're really targeting the big manufacturers. So it was Purdue, um, Teva, Johnson and Johnson. Um, a little bit of a curveball here is that Purdue and Teva both settled hmm. with Oklahoma, and they're like the two biggest hitters, right? I mean, Purdue, I think, is the biggest player. They're that's the company behind OxyContin that we've heard the most about, yeah. right? Exactly. They're the ones you see on 60 Minutes. Right, yeah. Yes. They settled for $270 million. Wow. And is and that... Oklahoma's and, not a huge no, state. No, yeah. I was going to say, is Oklahoma right. happy with that? Is that going to be enough for them to sort of recoup their losses, all the services that they've put up and, and the money that it's cost them, both in real money and, you know, in social costs? Oh, yeah, no, Oklahoma's not done. So, (laughs) (laughs) Teva settled for $88 million. Johnson & Johnson has not settled. So, there is still a case that is going to move forward in Oklahoma. And this is why all eyes are there. Because there's a number of cases that 
uh, state, county, city governments have filed against these um, big manufacturers and distributors. And so with this one being the first one moving forward, um, and then now with the two settled out, they're pursuing nuisance claims mm. against the remaining defendant. And so so the rest of the country is sort of gathered around here. Oklahoma's kind of going first, but I mean, we in Maryland, I, I, don't, I, don't, I lost count, but virtually all of our counties and our state government have sued these various manufacturers. Right. I mean, you can kind of walk us through the mechanics of that, but everybody's watching this Oklahoma business because that's going to be sort of the canary in the coal mine for how these trials or how the trial is going to end up is, is going to end up falling apart, right? Right, right. So in addition to almost all the counties and the state of Maryland, just to give some perspective to the size of how many of these jurisdictions nationwide, there is a case um, out of Ohio where they consolidated all those bringing um, federal uh, cases against the manufacturers and distributors, and it's over fifteen hundred local jurisdictions. And, and that in Maryland is our our cases. Some of our cases in Maryland consolidated in Ohio as well. Right. Okay. So yeah. Some of those are there. Some of them are um, uh, filed in state court. Oklahoma's one where that was a state court. They weren't in the um, big federal litigation, and so. There are a lot of eyes looking at this to say, how is this going to move forward? How are their legal arguments going to work? Are they going to be successful? Um, is this going to be drawn out? Right, the pharmaceutical right. industry surely has a lot of money. But given that you have over 1,500 <laughs> plaintiffs uh, looking at you, that's a whole lot of money to pay out eventually Absolutely. should they decide to settle. Or if uh, for instance, Johnson & Johnson is successful in the Oklahoma case. Does that stop all the other cases moving forward so Johnson, or give them pause? So Johnson & Johnson goes to court and they win. That could potentially be a signal to everybody else, hey, they actually can win a case that we all thought we had an ironclad case to, to take against them. But it turns out they didn't settle. They went to court. They won. That could be a problem for, for other jurisdictions that have suits. Right. I guess the, I mean, the legal argument here is tricky. I mean, Natasha, you're the, the lawyer in the room here. But I mean, the argument here is not just that, oh, gee, this product turned out to be harmful. And so we're coming back on whoever made it. It's more sort of insidious than that. It's it's that in the process of testing and definitely in the process of promoting the product, it's what the distributors and the manufacturers were telling everybody down the chain. They're telling doctors this stuff is fine. It's not habit forming. You can go ahead and recommend it to your people who have pain problems. This is going to be a good solution. It's going to keep your patients happy. And you know they may, un- may have undersold or arguably may have buried evidence that it had all these downside effects that people would become deeply addicted and, and more, more profoundly affected than may have been above the fold. Right. That's why Purdue ends up being the one that people really look towards because there was a lot of information found through <laughs> discovery. Trail, yeah, There's yeah. quite a paper trail <laughs> and emails and Videos. other... Exactly. Right. <laughs> where um, the family that runs it the people that work there knew what they were doing was contributing to this epidemic, knew that it was more addictive than they were letting on. Um, and in some cases, uh, there there's also evidence um, 
for some of these other manufacturers as well, um, where you have small towns. Um, I think there's one example out in West Virginia. It was a town of maybe 400 people yes, where yes. millions of pills were being sent to them. And you look at that from the big picture there and you're... Yeah, I'm not much yeah. of a math guy, but that doesn't, that doesn't work out too right. That, that doesn't seem right. So you, you mentioned earlier, Natasha, the state courts versus federal courts. Why are some deciding to sue in a state court rather than in federal court? Uh, so there's a lot there, but <laughs> the simple part of it is that um, in state court, you could file for certain state claims. So okay. if you have some state laws that you could use um, against the manufacturers or distributors, or even in some cases, there have been claims against specific doctors, right. for instance, right. you can pursue those in your state court. And then you think you might have a better chance in the state court rather than going for the larger, um, the federal court and the big consolidated case. Right. I think also a lot of these fields, both insurance and the professions themselves, tend to be regulated at the state level. Mm-hmm. So you might be pursuing a strategy. I remember talking to colleagues from Arkansas, and I think almost all the Arkansas counties filed in their state court. Part of their thinking was, this gives us a better chance to pull licenses of bad actors. Mm -hmm. If you're acting only in federal court, that's too far removed from the state-owned process. So sort of like, we're going to do stuff in Little Rock, and we're going to go to Little Rock to try and pull licenses of bad guys, and we have a, you know, there's there's an overlap there that made sense. So it seems case by case, but we have a mix in Maryland and across the country. It sounds like a mix of in various state courts, but a lot in federal court. Mm -hmm. And we know Big Pharma would much rather have this in federal court, uh, but there is a mixed bag. And bringing it back here locally, Natasha, what just happened in Anne Arundel County? We know that they have litigation as well, but what what happened there recently? Yeah, so Anne Arundel had um, filed a claim in state court against some bad acting doctors. But recently, the circuit court judge dismissed the case against the doctors because they um, the county didn't follow the, pr- the proper procedures to go and file the claim against them. So that was really dismissed on a technicality exactly. and not necessarily on the basis of the claim. Yeah, in that case, it's the the judge's reasoning there is there are other processes in the state level when you're making claims against um, malpracticing doctors and you should have done that before pursuing litigation. So it's not as simple as the manufacturers are potentially on the hook. I mean, one of the things you'd be worried about here is, oh my gosh, is this a really big turn for the worse in all these cases? Are we going to have manufacturers on the hook and distributors on the hook, but the bad docs get the walk? I mean, you read one headline and it's like, you know, court case thrown out mm-hmm. against bad opioid doctors. I read that headline. I thought, oh no, this could be terrible They're because get immunity. I mean, that's right. the last thing you want to see is some of the bad players here take a walk while others end up being held to account. This is not that. No, <laughs> this is uh, you can hold them accountable through other through, means. A, through a different process. <laughs> yeah, all right, exactly. so that, that, that's fine. So we don't, you know, we, it's not like you know uh, our folks in Anne Arundel would be getting phone calls from you know from everybody in Colorado <laughs> and Iowa and so forth saying what the heck's going on? Why did you ruin our case? It's not going to be like that. No, but this good, is good. why it's so interesting because there is so much going on. Kevin, as you mentioned, the manufacturers do have their interest in keeping it on a federal level, and one thing um, from their side would be that if they do a big federal settlement, what they what they would like would be that that stops everything else from going on. It doesn't work that way, exactly. So. so we know, I mean, obviously we know that opioids have ravaged this entire country. I think I saw 
700,000 people since 2009 or 1999, excuse me, have died from drug overdoses. Bottom line this for me, for our listeners, what does this mean? Where are we now? Where are we going? How does this Oklahoma settlement affect everybody else? The big thing there is that people are really looking to recoup from the harm that um, the epidemic has caused. It's costs a lot of money to treat people in the hospitals, to treat people in the jails, for people missing work. Right. Um, it really compounds. And so um, this is a hard-hitting epidemic. And what these local governments are looking for um, when they're pursuing litigation against um, these manufacturers is similar to the tobacco settlement in that you cause some harm and now you should be paying for that harm that you caused. Right. Right. Definitely. Local jails, local health clinics, a lot of county governments across the country own the hospitals and so forth. Mm -hmm. So so we're obviously directly affected here. And I mean, I, I think what what governments are looking for is this may be the avenue to get the resources we need to try and ramp up treatment and, and really win this fight. I mean, you know, we've seen Maryland doing new thing after new thing and launching new programs and trying new funding and so forth. We still are short beds. We still are short dollars. Uh, the idea of some of the people who caused this problem coughing up some of the solution, I think, sits well with most of us who are really worried about this fight. Okay. I think that's a great way to end this segment. We're going to leave it there for this episode as well. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a like, rate us wherever you listen. It really helps to get our message out. But for Natasha and Michael, this is Kevin signing off, and we will talk to you soon.